Welcome to the Designing Hollywood Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Meyer Burnett. The Designing Hollywood Podcast is dedicated to all things movies, the movie industry, and its talented professionals. Today's episode is sponsored by Fox Studios Costumes. Our guest today is a costume designer and is responsible for costuming some of our favorite blockbuster movies over the years, from Step Brothers and The Town <laughs> to my obsession, The Big Short, and Friday Night Lights, she has been leading teams in creating sartorial worlds for over two decades. Her latest project is the highly anticipated Netflix film, Don't Look Up, which has already become one of the most successful films ever on the streaming service, in which Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence play two low-level astronomers that embark on a giant media tour to warn mankind of an approaching comet that will destroy the planet Earth. This Netflix project has become one of the buzziest to date. She won the extremely prestigious award of Design of the Year at Parsons School of Design, one of the top design schools in the world. But back before her foray into film, she actually started her career, which I love this, as an action figure collector myself, working for Mattel, where she designed patterns for a very different, very specific clientele, Barbie. She describes herself as a method costume designer, which we'll get into. Without further ado... It is my pleasure to welcome award-winning costume designer Susan Matheson to the Designing Hollywood Podcast. Susan, wow, my God, Robert. it is such an honor to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you for being here. It's and an I, honor to talk to you. I mean, I got to start. I got. I just. I was telling you earlier. I'm obsessed with the Big Short. I'm obsessed with the work you did with director Adam McKay. You have a long-standing relationship with him, which continues on with Don't Look Up. But I got. I got to ask: Were you always? Was this something you you thought? Oh, I'm gonna get into film when you were at Parsons were you dreaming of becoming well, I was obsessed with film as a child and I grew up in South Africa in Cape Town and we did not have television until 1977 so the wait what yes that's correct they did not have television in South Africa so did you go to a lot of movies we would actually you know how you go to a video store and rent a video in the old days now, in, well, in South Africa, you could go rent the movie reel-to-reel, and everybody owned a projector, and then people would chip in, and you would rotate from house to house watching movies. Wow. So what were some of your favorites? Well, some of them were not my favorites, but they impacted <laughs> me greatly, and one of them was seeing Soylent Green at the age of five, and that's how I learned about death and the possible destruction of planet Earth. Okay, you just set me up here. Do you know what year Soylent Green, the movie, takes place in? No. 2022. No. I am not kidding. <laughs> Soylent Green takes place in 2022, and everyone knows How that- do you know? that uh, well uh, the re okay i'll tell you why i know that do you know everything i have Robert? a giant movie poster for soylent green i have what's called a, <laughs> a, i have a six sheet it's 81 inches by 81 inches Were and you, it says did you like that movie i loved soylent green it's the thing that changed my life with it's, soylent green oh it, it is well first of all you know if you go back and watch that now it it, it still works. I mean, it's still really relevant. I mean, some of it's a little, they call women furniture, which probably won't fly. <laughs> it's not going to fly in 2022. But the, the rest of the film and the idea that, that um, you know, people can decide to commit suicide if they want. and To help the earth. To help the earth. And, of course. Because you're creating food. You're creating yeah, food. We, we're giving it away. It's totally, you know. But I, 
it, I cannot tell you how much it delights me that you just brought up Soylent Green. <laughs> <laughs> so were there some others? I mean, there's some, you know, Charlton Heston, Chuck Heston as a detective. Come on. We watched, uh, I think my next movie, we started to go down the Olsen Wells route. All right. So, yeah. I mean, another great, another great uh, film. The I Magnificent mean, Amberson. So good. I love that. Um, and Peter Bogdanovich was a big friend of Orson Welles. He just passed away, so shout out to Peter Bogdanovich. But now, so how did you then decide to get into film? How did that, being a film fan, did you, when you were growing up, did you want to become a costume designer for movies? Did you Well, dream? I always wanted to be in a chorus line on Broadway, tap dancing and singing, because I love to tap dance and sing. I actually had a bad tap dancing accident when we were shooting Friday Night Lights because I decided one of the actors uh, who plays, it's Booby's uh, Yeah, uncle. Booby Miles. Yeah. <laughs> he was an incredible tap That tap actor dancer. is great. He's brilliant. He's he, absolutely brilliant. He's so good. that He has, what a face he has too. So it turns out he knew how to tap dance and I had been a champion tap dancer as a child. So we started tap dancing after hours in the bar in Odessa. And then one day I decided to show off for Pete Berg and tap danced on marble stupid you need to tap dance on wood don't tap dance on marble <laughs> and i slip. took such a fall that i had a bruise about 13 inches long on my hip wow that's that's not good how was that i mean i'm a huge the tv series which peter berg also produced is one of my favorite tv shows of all time but i love the film i mean billy bob thornton is great in that movie yeah, so, that was an incredible experience for me. I decided to desaturate all the costumes for the people that lived in Odessa because Odessa is a real place yeah. and they're stuck there. And the only opportunity to escape Odessa is the potential of being a football star. So what I decided to do on that film was to desaturate the colors of everybody. So I literally bleached out and overdyed into this kind of sludgy color palette of warm tones. Mm. And then anything that represented the possibility of escape um, was much brighter and shinier. The football uniforms, wow. the wealthier people in the town that uh, was supporting the football team, all of those kind of people that had the opportunity to go out of this world were brighter and shinier. And the people who were stuck in Odessa, I kind of create, I created the suffocating color palette. Well, that's amazing. Well, now, I have to, since you bring this up, a lot of the costume designers that I've talked to talk about being uh, influenced by art, fine art. They spend time in museums and look at light and color. And is that something that you, you do? I mean, is, is, were museums a big thing for you when you were growing up? And are they influential to you now? Well, I was always interested in architecture and sculpture. Okay. I actually... While I was at Vassar College, every single summer, I went to the Maryland Institute College of Art oh. and took drawing and design and color theory and all those kinds of things. Wow, okay. So I actually, after Vassar, spent a year at the Maryland Institute studying sculpture. I really wanted to wow. become a sculptor. And my father said to me, I'm not going to support graduate school for something that you can't go out and get a nine to five job. So he said to me, this is how it all led into, into fashion and costumes. He said, I don't care what it is. Because I was obsessed with architecture and I did do drafting for a year or two at Vassar. Wow, okay. So he said, I don't care what it is. Architecture, 
fashion, plumbing, I don't care, anything. Just get a degree for grad school and something you can get a job. So he put the kibosh on my sculpture dream. I really thought that's what I was going to be, or an architect. And I spent, and uh, this is brilliant, my mother said, why don't you spend the summer with an architect? Because I was obsessed with becoming an architect. And the architect one day turned to me and he said, 95% of my time is taken up with where does the toilet go? And things like that. And he said, 5% is design. He said, so think about it. And you know, it was nothing like actually spending time with an architect who was building massive hotels to realize that it was a big mistake for me. Wow. So that is kind of what led me into going to Parsons School of Design. Parsons at the time had three campuses when I applied. So Parsons had a campus in France, a campus in New York and a campus in LA, and it was all part of the new school. And so when I went there, it was Parsons. And by the time I graduated, it was called Parsons. Oh, no, it was called Otis Parsons. Right. But the program was run by Parsons in New York. Uh, and it was based, the LA and French programs were all exactly the same as New York. And so that's how I got the Designer of the Year Award when I was there. And it was an amazing experience because Thierry Mugler flew from France to give me that award. And I remember walking with Thierry and him mumbling to me that he was nervous and where was he supposed to stop and where was he supposed to look? <laughs> and it was, it was just this magical memory for me. Now, did, did dad come around now that you're an award-winning designer at Parsons? Did dad say, okay, maybe you've got a future? <laughs> Unfortunately, my father uh, traveled to the other side, as in, you know, he, he died oh, when sorry. I was a sophomore. But um, he, I was able to, while I was at Parsons, talk to him. And he said to me, I don't want you to drop out of school while, while, I don't want you to drop out of school while I'm dying. My dying wish is for you to stay in school so you can get a nine to five job. And he said, and I want you to excel. So I was driven by my father to really pay attention and be a good student <laughs> because at Vassar I was too busy protesting apartheid in South Africa. We had a sleep-in for a month where we blocked the entrance to Vassar. I got pneumonia. You know, I was, a, I was really busy with politics. <laughs> well, I wasn't, I wasn't going to play Sun City. You, I wasn't going to play Sun City. <laughs> tell you that. No way. No way. I wasn't going to do it. We camped out. We were trying to get Vassar to divest from South Africa and a lot of colleges at the time were doing that. So of course being South Africa, I was, um, of course being South African, I was very involved. Well then I guess shout out to Desmond Tutu. Yeah. Who just passed. Yeah. And I actually used to live right near him in Cape Town because the Bishop's estate where he lived was right around the corner from where I was as a child. So you have an incredible educational pedigree. How'd you wind up at Mattel designing for Barbie? Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> Not that that's a bad thing. Actually, if you want to be a fashion designer in the way that Dior used to be a designer, where you sit and draw beautiful drawings, mm. and then you realize these magnificent ball gowns, the place to be is Mattel. <laughs> right. Because Barbie is the world's most successful fashion model. Wow. I, you, know, you know what? Uh, I and you 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 know one of my favorite things going to Toys R Us when they still had Toys R Us was the Barbie aisle, 
because there was such a diverse bunch of like I, I I'm like why don't they make like a pink Corvette for my action figures? They made one for Barbie. My friend designed an airplane that opened up into a runway for I think that was actually for Polly Pocket. But I said to Peter, he's Peter Hellenick, who's a brilliant toy designer. I said to Peter, Peter. I need this plane with the fashion runway, please, right away. So, yeah, I was a flamboyant dresser my whole life. Even when I was a teenager, I, I, I was obsessed with fashion. Oh, I would say alternative fashion. So I don't know why at the age of 12 I marched my mother into World's End, which was a store in London run by Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren. And, of course, they had designed the clothes for the p Sex Pistols. Yeah. And at the age of 12, I forced my mother to buy me an outfit there, which I still have, by the way. So were you a punk? I would say that I was very new wave slash punk. And then later on, I actually landed up doing the door for five years after I left Mattel on a Sunday at a punk club, by the way. Nice. I was the door girl, and I used to wear only leisure suits at the time. <laughs> Now, did you have? I got since you brought it up. Did you have favorite? Like, I am a I am a child of '80s Brit pop. I mean, I would call myself a new romantic if I had to define myself. But I was also obsessed with like 4AD with things, bands like the Cocteau Twins or Cocteau Twins. Uh, were, anything Ivo uh, was doing. Okay, so Cocteau Twins. It was pretty much running all the time when I was in college, nonstop, and then the soundtrack to Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Oh, Ryuichi Sakamoto and, and David Sylvian. Yeah, singing mind, Forbidden Colors. Mind-blowing. And uh, <laughs> that really influenced me. You asked me how I landed at Mattel. Let me go back to that. <laughs> I know. We're like, I've uh, gone on a tangent, <laughs> man. <laughs> it's all good. Listen, I'm known for that. But I do circle back. It's, okay? uh, I, I, so, <laughs> so Mattel. Uh, Mattel saw my final fashion show. Uh, when we have the fashion show, when you graduate from... Parsons, we had it at the Beverly Hilton and people from Mattel came and saw my designs and I did some work for Richard Tyler and also for Bob Ma Richard Tyler and Bob Mackey and actually Frank Rizzo was a critic as well. He ran the New York Parsons. Did you know Daniel Orlandi who works, who we've interviewed on the show, he worked with Bob Mackey. I don't know if he worked there at the time. Yes, I know Daniel. Um, he has a house near me in Palm Springs. Oh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of him. Yeah, He's amazing. Yeah, I love Daniel. <laughs> well, so you were at Mattel. Now, how did you make the transition into Hollywood? It's a crazy story. <laughs> I was at Mattel, and I was loving it because I got to draw beautiful drawings every day. And the person who recommended I get a job at Mattel was Bob Mackey, actually. Wow. Because Bob Mackey was designing these magnificent dolls that were kind of like the newer version of Sherrod's outfits that he did that he was so famous for. And he said to me, Susan, this is the fantasy job for a fashion designer because my thing really was women's evening wear and couture when I was in school. That's what I loved to do. Menswear was not my strength. Um, mm. It's ironic that I do a lot of movies that are with men. I've done The Kingdom, which was terrorism, football. I've done... Talladega Nights, which was racing. I've done basketball twice. And I literally said to, uh, it was Scott Stuber who put me on the kingdom after doing Blue Crush. And I said to him, what do I know about this stuff? You know, football. He put me on Friday Night Lights too. And I said, I know nothing about football, Scott. And he said, well, you're a good designer, so you'll figure it out. <laughs> so. I have to say, you know, um, 
Kate Bosworth, I got to know her a little bit on Superman Returns. Love, love Kate. She's one of the coolest people. Mm-hmm. And also, she's a phenomenal actress. Yeah. I, I really think I'd like to see her used more because she's terrific. And I, I'm a huge Blue Crush fan. What, what can I say? Are you serious? So you're just blowing uh, smoke up? No, no. This? I'm a huge. I, <laughs> first of all, how can you not love that movie? Yeah. She's, in, she's wearing swimmer the whole time. You know, it's, it's hot girl surfing. Come on. No, but I do like, you know, and I'm a Peter Berg fan too. I mean, I actually love The Kingdom and I love Friday Night Lights. But, uh, you know, once you, I'm curious, you know, you've had long time relationships with Peter Berg. You worked on multiple films with Adam McKay. How did you begin to develop as a creative entity yourself? How do you work synergistically with your directors? Do you start with the script? Do you start with their vision? Like, how do you begin that process, the design process? Well, I really treat every script like I'm analyzing a novel like, and really trying to understand the motivation behind the characters. I have to admit something that I don't like to talk about, but at Vassar, I was studying art history, and when I discovered that they weren't at the time in the 80s considering photography and art, I had a fit it's different now, okay? Don't worry about it. It's totally different now. Okay. But at the time, I, I had a fit, and I, I got into an argument. So I was going to be an art history major, and I quickly looked for the major that I could graduate still with. Yeah. And it was drama. And so I was attempting to be an actress. It didn't work out for me. <laughs> I couldn't get rid of my accent. And anyway, that was a disaster. But when you're in the drama department, you have to volunteer for lighting, sets, costumes. So that is really how I got involved with costumes. And when I first started, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to sew. So my very first project that I designed was UNESCO's Rhinoceros. And they turn into rhinoceri in the play. (laughs) So I was like, well, what can you do if you don't know how to sew? I was like, I'm going to make the rhinoceros costumes out of corrugated cardboard, like Frank Gehry style. Because, you know, I'd been studying architecture. Sure. I was like, he did corrugated cardboard. I'm going to do costumes out of it. So I decided that I was going to indicate who was going to become a rhinoceros by giving them a cardboard purse or a cardboard tie, a cardboard briefcase, a cardboard bow in the hair. So it was an indication that they would eventually become rhinoceri. So that was my very first thing I ever designed. And <laughs> Do you have pictures of that? I have somewhere. <laughs> great to see those. <laughs> and eventually, I started to learn how to sew badly at the time. I learned my, how to sew a lot better when I went to Parsons in L.A. Mm. So working on, I mean, you've worked on a lot of great stuff. I mean, you even worked on Terminator Genesis, which I think is actually pretty. <laughs> I Don't laugh, I'm a huge Sci-fi fanatic. I am, too. When I got that job, I just had a colonoscopy, and I was coming out of anesthesia, and my agent called, and I don't even know why I picked up the phone. I was half asleep, <laughs> like, <laughs> really out of it. And she said, you know, you've just been offered Terminator Genesis. And I said, oh, okay, that's great. Um, wow, wow. And I put down the phone, because I've always been a huge Terminator fan, and I was a huge Philip K. Dick fan. I used to read everything of Philip K. Dick. So I was obsessed with sci-fi. And so I, I finally come to, and I'm like thinking, did I get a call saying I got Terminator Genesis? So I call my agent, and I'm like, is this some kind of uh, hallucination or is this for real? And she goes, no, this is for real. And I was like, this is great. Doing that was amazing, you know. 
Because you had to go back and recreate all the other Terminator movies. How much that fun was that? was part of it. Uh, that was very difficult. Uh, the Some of the costumes that we had to recreate, uh, some of them I landed up taking a paintbrush to create that one T-shirt that the three thugs that he first yeah. meets. The, Meets, at, um, at the Griffith Park Observatory. I was sitting in the office with a paintbrush and trying to get it to look just like it. But Terminator uh, Genesis, there's a lot of future fighters and it's a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles. So I had to think, what are you going to find in the ashes that are going to make you have armor that you kind of just made from tires and right. street signs and things like that. So unfortunately... You don't see a lot of it, but I used a lot of crazy stuff on the Future Fighters, and they're very sculptural. I, I try to not focus on too much frou-frou in my design and really focus on silhouettes, and I think it's because of my sculpture background. Right. I'm much more interested in dramatic silhouettes, and then I lived in Japan twice. And Did you ever see Ryuichi Sakamoto live? Yes, I saw him in Los Angeles at the Ace Hotel right before downtown, uh, right before COVID. Was wow. incredible. And it's one of the only solo concerts he's done in many, many years. He played the piano by himself, and that was it. Wow. I would he normally love to performs have, with an orchestra. I'd love to have seen that. Yeah. I didn't see that. So I'm curious like, look, I can't not ask you about things like Anchorman. I, well, mean, I did Anchorman 2, not yeah. Anchorman 1. Uh, no, I know. But I, I, I mean, it's the, the costumes for that movie, half of the fun of those movies are the costume design. Because before you even laugh, the, the costumes that everyone's wearing uh, across the board put a smile on your face. Now, I know you're following up Anchorman 1, but still, I mean, when you're coming on and working with Adam McKay, who is one of, I think, our great satirists, you know, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Step Brothers, and whatever. You, you've done a lot of great comedy stuff. Mm -hmm. What is the secret for a costume design in a comedy film? Like, where do you... Is there a way to infuse funny into clothes? Yeah, but you have to be careful. There's a fine line that you don't infuse so much funny that you give away the joke before the joke happens. Right. So it's, it's interesting. Adam and Will hired me after I did Friday Night Lights, and they wanted me to do Talladega Nights in North Carolina. And I'd never done a comedy in my life. And they called my agent because they'd seen Friday Night Lights. And they decided that they actually wanted a bit of grittiness in their comedies. So in Talladega Nights, other than the wild racing suits, if you watch that movie, everything that people are wearing is very gritty and real. Um, it's. I was trying to not give away the joke. But in Anchorman 2, you know, it is that world where you do have to have some funny. But I did adjust quite a lot of the costumes from Anchorman 1 to Anchorman 2. I recut the burgundy suit. Mm -hmm. I, so the things that were had to be in there, I subtly finessed. Um, you know, I'm so terrible with names. Okay, this has to be cut out of here. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, I, I, I think what you're, what's interesting to me is I, I'm a big proponent of verisimilitude, the, the feeling of reality. And the thing about Talladega Nights is it feels, it feels very authentic. And the costumes, obviously, when you're wearing those, especially the, when you're in those driving suits with all the different the colors and the different sponsors and all that, it looked very genuine. 
Because if it was like the Flintstones or something, it wouldn't be funny. And the fact that there's, it looks genuine, it looks real, well, and then to have the actors act the characters they play because it feels like you're in a real environment. And then, yeah, I, mean, I was obsessed with Wonder Bird that we had to have a Wonder Bird racing suit because when I first came to America, it was eighth grade, and the very first sandwich I was given at the cafeteria at my school in Baltimore <laughs> was an egg salad sandwich on Wonder Bread. And I remember saying to someone, what is this? Because <laughs> in South Africa, people made their own bread and was really rustic and heavy with seeds and whole grains. So I'm like, what, what is this stuff? And they're like, that's Wonder Bread. So I have such a memory of these iconic American labels. My principal in elementary school used to tell everybody that he wore that he, he used to tell everybody that he wore Old Spice cologne. So, of course, John C. Riley is wearing an Old Spice racing suit. So these are all things that harken back to moments in my childhood. Did you have to tell, like, Adam McKay, I want to have a Wonder Bread? Well, we discussed a lot of it. And with Adam, we have this kind of psychic connection, and it's very back and forth. And I throw something out, and he throws something out. And I always say to Adam, how about I try your idea, I try my idea, I do it, all of it, and we figure out where it lands. Because sometimes you can have an idea and it actually turns out to be a bad idea. Right. You don't know until you actually do it. And so then with Adam, I get back together with him and say, hey, so here's what you were saying, here's something that's completely unexpected, where do we land with, with this? And I have this funny thing with Adam, which started on Talladega Nights, where I would say to Adam, I really want Will to wear this Crystal Gale t-shirt when he's driving Now, do you have to Cougar. clear that? Like, if you have a Crystal, yeah, you have to yeah, go clear yeah. it so it becomes so a... I'd find this tiny pink Crystal Gale t-shirt with glitter on it in a thrift store. And I realized that Will's character leaves racing and he moves in with his mother played by Jane Lynch but he leaves in such a hurry that he didn't take clothing so I say to Will and Adam well where are his clothes he's got to wear his mother's clothes he has to wear whatever's in his mother's closet so I'm like Will here's this Crystal Gale t-shirt what do you think if I make it in your size and Will is very tall I went, you know with with the glitter and the pink and Crystal Gale because it was from Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue, yeah, that yeah. song. She had very long hair. <laughs> and I like to use T-shirts that nobody's ever seen in a movie. If I see one more ACDC T-shirt in a Dude, movie, I'm going to gag. And the reason is because it's easy to clear. Right. I want to throw things in movies that people have forgotten, like Pablo Cruz and Step Brothers. Do you know that they played at the rap party and I went up to them and said, hey, you know, I found a record... <laughs> You know, album cover at a thrift store and I was like wow I've got to put this on a t-shirt that's what I did so I went up to them and told them the story and he said you know we, you've resurrected our career we're touring again because of your putting on t-shirt and step brothers <laughs> he said so I've got to thank you and then Crystal Gale became obsessed thinking that Will was a fan of hers and that's why he was wearing the t-shirt <laughs> and I wanted to call her and say Crystal yes but but actually you know, I remember when I came to America, that song, so, with her wow. long hair. So that a lot of things that land up are, you know, with Adam at this point, I've been working with him since Talladega Nights. That's a long time ago. Well, yeah. So it's like we're family and it's this psychic connection back and forth. 
Well, it's interesting to me to hear you say that because, you know, everyone who works on a film, I think, pluses the project. You want the people that you work with to add to the tapestry of whatever the finished film turns out to be. And to have you hearing you say that that's how you're, you're thinking outside the box, you're turning something, you're adding a joke or adding flavor that wasn't there before. Well, I think it's in Step Brothers. Uh, when he's in therapy, he's wearing some T-shirts that, gosh, I can't remember right now, but he's wearing some T-shirts that refer in a weird way to therapy. You know, Adam said to me on that movie, I want you to dress them like they're 12 years old. <laughs> So that's where it started, and I went with this. So what I was going to say to you, when Adam and I disagree, I say to him, Adam, I really think we need to use this. And he's like, no, no, no. And I'm like, come on. So he looks at me and he goes, do you feel very strongly about this, Susan? <laughs> and I'll go, yeah, very strongly. So sometimes I win, and sometimes I can say very strongly, and he goes, no way. <laughs> wow. Well, <laughs> so it goes both ways. One of the things that I reading about you and, and uh, in the one of the things we had we sent you the question to prep for is the idea that you're a method costume designer. I'd never heard that before. And <laughs> I, and hearing that you asked the cast of Don't Look Up to come in character and I'm always fascinated I don't tell them to come. I kind of force it on them once they're in the fitting they have oh. no idea that i'm going to do that oh so I, I do it on almost every movie yeah. I, well i love that idea and i think that you know I, i've always said that the, the the some of the most important hires on any movie are your hair and makeup people and the costume designer because that's your first line of defense with your actors you want your actors to love the way they look love their characters and your hair and makeup people and your costume people are two of the key players on any movie to make them what they are. And the idea that you're a method costume designer and that you want them to do that, could you talk about... Why? The, the, <laughs> well, the cast, for, the cast for Don't Look Up, what a cast. I mean, my God, it, 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 you watch the, the... Between, from Leonardo DiCaprio to Meryl Streep, who is the greatest of all time, you know, and, and Jonah Hill, and, and just, I mean, Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett. I, who would have thought to put them together as newscasters and her outfits were insane like what was it like starting on that movie and 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 just talk t tell us about well at Don't one Look point Up. i said to adam is there any way you could stop costing so many famous people <laughs> i said because it, it was i've never had that many actors that are that well known in, in any project you know there's normally three to five but Every other character was like, oh, Chris Evans is coming in today. <laughs> you know, uh, it, was, it was wild. Now we've got Timothy Chalamet. So it, uh, about being a method costume designer, it's partly that I did act in college and I did do costumes for theater. Mm. And I really do analyze the script as if it is literature. And I can't come up with a costume until I understand the motivation behind the act, the motive until I, I can't come up with the costume until I understand the motivation of the character and what is driving them. So I go very, very deep. I'll give you an example. I was driving Adam crazy on Don't Look Up and I kept saying to Adam, where is Kate DeBiaski? That's Jennifer Lawrence's character. Where is she from? And he's like, why do you need to know that? I'm like, no, I need to know what town did she grow up in? So finally, I pestered him 
and finally says to me, DuCoin, Illinois. <laughs> is it Illinois? I think it's Illinois. So I said, okay, great. So what happens is gives me a starting point because if she's going to wear T-shirts in the movie, I want it to be a T-shirt that she either got from her father or her mother or her grandparent or it's from a journey that she's taken near DuCoin, Illinois. So I start looking for DuCoin. Then I noticed St. Louis was nearby. Um, I noticed that they could have gone to Hershey Park in Pennsylvania. But I start picturing, like, what did she do in her life? And that's what kind of the method costume designer. I really start to get very, very deep into why would they wear this? Mm -hmm. Because I don't throw clothing on a character because it looks cute or looks good. I mean, she had to look good in the movie, but I, and, and also edgy too. But I really tried to understand, well, why would she wear this? And, and so, you know, I even had a T-shirt made for her that was vintage from the Pimlico racetrack in Baltimore. Um, I, there were a whole bunch of things that you don't see because she's got layers on them, but I don't care if their layers covering it up. Right. I need to know that even down to the underwear, that it's all absolutely right for the thing that this character well, is Well, actors have to appreciate. Do you, do, you, do you tell actors that that's what you've done? Do you say, listen, Yeah, so I've when I met with Jennifer, I showed her a map of America, a map showing where DeCoin was, and I said, this is where you're from. I said, this is where you've gone. You traveled to St. Louis with your family. You also went to Nashville, Tennessee, um, you probably went to Hershey Park. You know, these are the places you probably went with your family. So then I started, uh, I get deep into it. I say, well, you're an astrophysicist. Here are astrophysicists that are outsiders. You know, I found one with blue hair. I found one with really red, bright red hair as well, like her character. And I said, these are the people like you that are astrophysicists. I have to ground it in reality. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense that she looked the way that she looked. And there are, within uh, the world of astrophysicists, iconoclasts. So I, I gave her like a tour through where she would have been from. And I did the same thing with Timothy because he was from DuCoin as well. And I, he actually is wearing a DuCoin t-shirt, I think at the end of the movie, but you only see part of it. But, you know, we all know, and he knew. But what happens in the fitting is if you just take fitting photos of an actor standing there looking like this for the camera or like this for the camera or like this for the camera, it's really boring to look at the pictures and it doesn't, you know, when, when you put clothes on someone, if they're not in the character mode, then it just looks like clothes on anyone. So I, some actors, not with everybody, but like with Kid Cudi, he was wearing Armani Nev's, uh, ski wear actually in the scene with Ariana Grande this incredible goatskin outfit white and I don't think you could ever ski in it <laughs> I don't think so but you know I'm in the fitting and I'm trying to think if it's actually going to work in this and so I say to him hey could you perform right now like and so he grabs a fake microphone like this in his hand and he starts and he gets down on the ground and then he's hopping up and he is <laughs> He's doing a total performance. And I got some amazing pictures of him. And so then I say to him, uh, hey, did you used to model? I said, because you really pose very, very well. And he says to me, a little. He says, Cleveland, Barbizon models as a child. 
<laughs> I don't know if he's ever told anyone that. You know, his name is Scott. So I was like, Scott, did you used to model? And he's like, a little. So I don't know if he talks about that. And I apologize to him if I've let something out of the bag. But with Timothy, or Timothy is one of the ways you can pronounce his name. I asked him. Uh, he came in with this Bible. And there's a scene at the end of the movie when the comet is hurtling towards Earth and they're discussing whether or not strawboard apple pie is superior to homemade apple pie. I love that moment in the movie because Adam said to me, I really want to show that in the end it's the little things in life that matter and that really in the end it's those moments with friends and family talking about what kind of apple pie is better that are the moments that you remember. So he came in with this Bible, and I said to him, let me take some pictures of you reading the Bible. And then I said, how about you pray like you're doing at the end of the movie? So he gets on his knees, and I've got pictures of him praying. And the next thing, he put on some death metal music. It was driving me crazy, but it was a lot of fun. (laughs) It was hard to concentrate, but I had one of the greatest fittings of my life with him because the next thing, I'm like, just move. You know, this is your music. And he starts like doing like kicks towards the camera. I've got a picture with his foot hitting like the camera, <laughs> you know. And the same thing with Kate Blanchett. The funniest thing with Kate Blanchett is she just started posing. I didn't have to ask her. And so she'd have her leg up in the air or she'd be doing something strange. She would never stand still for a photo. And I would say, Kate, Kate, what are you doing right now? And she'd say, can't you tell what I'm doing? I'm like, no, I cannot tell what you do. She's like, I'm sitting on a chair right now in the studio with Tyler Perry. This is me sitting. I'm showing you how the dress is going to look when I'm sitting. <laughs> then she has a sex scene in the hallway, and she's got her leg up in the air. And I'm like, how am I supposed to show Adam these pictures of this dress? Your leg's up in the air. And she said, well, my leg is going to be up in the air in the scene, Susan. So we need to know if the dress is going to stretch and work for that scene. So she said, so this is what you need to show Adam. So I have some of the wildest fitting photos of Kate Blanchett that I've ever taken in my life. And I love her so much I can't even tell you. Well, I mean, I would love to see, like, if they ever do a, a, a Blu-ray or 4K special edition of that movie and put it out on physical media, they have to do a piece on the photographs you took with these actors. They're wild. I mean, that that, that, <laughs> that in itself is a piece. I had this thing with DiCaprio. I have this uh, these velvet paintings that I got in North Carolina of a fox and John Wayne. And they're on, you know, their paintings on velvet. And I would... I figured out a perfect place to put the fox painting to the right by my shoulder. And so I was not getting great pictures of DiCaprio. And finally I said to him, hey, Leo, can you look at the fox? And he starts looking at the fox. And I got the most amazing pictures of Leo. And everybody that I would tell, look at the fox, would say, how did you know the fox is, Leo didn't say this, but others said, the fox is my totem. And I was like, well, great, great. How about John Wayne too? You know. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that film, the tapestry of that movie is amazing. I mean, it's so much, there's so much going on in that film. Um, have you been gratified at the response? Yeah. I, you know, I did an interview for Vogue magazine that I, I, I was shocked that they wanted to talk because usually Vogue really focuses on fashion. And um, it's unbelievable how many people have contacted me from from seeing seeing that and then land up in People Magazine. I just am amazed at the response uh, to this. The thing that a lot of people were focusing on was that I did total transformations and a lot of these actors said that they're unrecognizable. 
And that is what I want to do. I want people to look different than they've ever looked before in a movie. Well, I, 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 Mark Rylance. I mean, he, he, he... I love him. I mean, uh, how did you... T- obviously, there's... I'm all glad you asked Tech me. moguls, man. I mean, he. I'm a huge fan of his. I he love can Mark. do anything. But what was that like? And how did you guys work? It was wild. So I got to speak to him, and then we had ongoing lengthy emails back and forth to England, back and forth. And he would send me pictures of himself. Um, and so finally, we were trying to find where this character was, and I was looking at every tech titan in the business. You know, of course, you know, we've got black turtlenecks for uh, Steve Jobs at Apple. You know, got Mark Zuckerberg looking a lot more schlumpy. You know, it, it runs the gamut. And a lot of them were Brunello Cuccinelli, by the way. Turns out even the T-shirts that cost five $600, they're wearing those T-shirts. So <laughs> that was a discovery. But with Mark, it was an incredible process. And so finally, I said to him, you know, Mark, if you're the richest guy in the world and you're a tech titan, you would have had a perfect face, perfect teeth, perfect hair, because you would have had face replacement. I said, and you would have had every part of your face redone so that you looked like perfection. I said, you should have a tan, you should have perfect teeth, you should have perfect hair and a perfect face. So that's how we started and then hair and makeup were incredible getting involved in this process. So Mark came in for his fitting took a picture of him. Then he came back from hair and makeup and he was unrecognizable. He, I, I don't think people even know it's him. It, it, it was amazing. Well, listen, I could talk to you forever, but we, <laughs> we have to wrap this up. But I, 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 would, I would ask, because everyone who listens to these podcasts, you, you told us a lot about your background, which I think is great uh, hearing about that. But there's a lot of people now, what advice can you give somebody about if you want to get into this Obviously, you had a very uh, – your schooling was incredible. You had a, a very wide variety of design work and things. And I, I, I've always believed in the fundamentals when you're involved in, in filmmaking or any kind of profession in the arts. But is there something you can, you can tell people who yeah. want to get involved? The, first of all, my main piece of advice is don't give up. You will have many hurdles and many people who will say no to you. My very first movie, I was a PA. Listen, I was the world's oldest intern, actually, because I left Mattel. And the reason I left Mattel is I had a massive horse riding accident and fractured my back, broke all the ribs on my left side and all the bones in my arm. Horse so, riding, so tap dancing. So you'd ask me why I left Mattel. And the reason I left Mattel is I had an epiphany that I'd always wanted to work on films. And so I left this career that I was very happy in. But I was like, you know, in life, we should try many things. So the advice is... Don't give up when someone, when you're an intern, tells you, stop crunching on that apple. Get out of here. That's what happened to me in my very first movie, and I was already 32 years old. So, you know, I gave up this career and didn't know anyone. I became an intern. Then I became a PA. Uh, And the advice I have is if you want to become a costume designer, volunteer on every student project at film schools that you can get on, USC, AFI, UCLA, I did that. So in summers at Parsons School of Design, during the summer, I was doing student films. Wow, okay. And if you want to design, then design. And so I also had to realize that at a certain point, I was offered a job as an assistant costume designer on an enormous movie. And a friend of mine said to me, well, if you become really good at that, then you're really good at that. She said, turn it down and try to keep designing. 
And so you're going to have lots of naysayers, but literally give it a chance because everybody's going to have three to five years when you start any new career where you have to meet people and learn how to do it. And you're going to have times that are horrible and times that are great. But don't let the horrible times bring you down and make you stop. Keep going. I can't ask for better advice than that. Well, Susan Matheson, this has been a delightful conversation. I could talk to you for days. Robert, I could talk to you for a good month. <laughs> well, one, we should do that. Please, let's, let's schedule it. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the Designing Hollywood podcast. Our sponsor today was Fox Studios. They have a costume department that goes back, spans the entire history of Hollywood. I want to thank them for sponsoring this episode. I, of course, want to thank our executive producer and founder, Martika Ibarra, of the Designing Hollywood podcast and the legendary costume designer, Marilyn Vance, who brought me into this crazy, fun, awesome experience. I mean, my God, it was amazing that I could even speak to her. I mean, and to you and to everybody. My name is Robert Meyer Burnett. You can find me on social media, on Twitter at BurnettRM. Find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett or on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. Thanks very much, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Thank you.